All right. Well, you know what I'm going to say next. So uh, get yourself ready. Get your fingers ready. And uh, turn with me, if you will, to the place where this week's Torah portion begins. It's towards the end of Exodus, or Shemot, chapter 27. And it is, in fact, uh, verse 20. And it says, And they shall command, or you shall command, the Benai Israel. And that word there is uh, a, the command form, uh, second person, tetzaveh that they bring first unto you pure olive oil, beaten for the light, to cause a light, the menorah as it turns out, to burn continually in the tent of meeting, uh, in the ohel, without the veil, in other words, outside the veil, which is before the testimony. Aaron and his sons shall set in order to burn it from evening to morning before Yahuwah. This it says, and here's one of these things we've seen before, we're going to see it again, this shall be a statute forever throughout their generations, throughout their generations, that's interesting, on behalf of the Benai Yisrael. Now the next chapter says, And you shall bring near unto you Aaron your brother, and his sons with him from among the Benai Israel, that they may minister to me in the office of the Kohen, even Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar, his four sons. And you shall make for them holy set-apart garments, or coverings, for Aaron, your brother, for, and here are the two words here, uh, splendor and for beauty. And you shall speak to them unto all that are wise-hearted, whom I have filled with the spirit of wisdom, that they make Aaron's garments to sanctify, to set him apart, that he may minister unto me in the office of Cohen. Here we go. These are the garments which they shall make, a breastplate and an ephod and a robe and a tunic of checkered work and a miter and a girdle. Now make holy garments for Aaron your brother and his sons, eight garments in total, that he may minister to me in the office of Cohen. And they shall take the gold, the blue, the purple, and the scarlet, and the fine linen, and make uh, the ephod, or the shoulder cape, if you will, of gold and blue and purple and scarlet and fine twine linen, the work of the skillful workman. It will have two shoulder pieces that join the two ends thereof, so that they can be, in fact, joined together. And... um, the skillfully woven band which is upon it that will be used to gird it on shall be the uh, like the work of uh, the one we just talked about and of the same piece, gold, blue, purple, scarlet, and fine twine linen. Now you're going to take two onyx stones and graven or engrave on them the names of the Benai Yisrael. Six of the names on one stone and on the other stone six that remain according to their birth. So in the order of their birth. Uh, now, this is uh, kind of interesting. I, I, I noted this again tonight. The um, the claim is, and I can't prove this, it's, uh, it's oral tradition, but it's kind of interesting, and I got to thinking about it, that there's this miraculous little worm that they actually use to do the engraving, that does fine engraving work on stone, which, uh, you know, you, you tend to think, well, that... That sounds a little far-fetched. On the other hand, uh, it came from somewhere. But as I was thinking about it, I, I couldn't help but realize, you know, we have technology today with nano machines, folks, that will do similar things. Is it any real leap to believe that the creator of the universe could do at least that well and arguably better? So um, anyway, that at least kind of uh, that struck me as being an interesting uh, thought. All right, with the work of an engraver in stone, like the engravings of a signet, that's how you'll do it. Engrave the two stones according to the names of the Benai Israel. Make them to be enclosed in settings of gold. Then you put these two stones upon the shoulder pieces of the ephod to be stones of memorial for the Benai Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before Yahuwah upon his two shoulders for a memorial. 
And then you'll make settings out of gold, two chains of pure gold, plated thread you'll make with it of wreathen work. Put the wreathen chains in the, on the settings, and then you make a breastplate of judgment. The work of the skillful workman, like the work of the ephod, you'll make it of gold, of blue, of purple, and scarlet, and fine twine linen. That's how you make it. It'll be square, four square, and doubled. A span will be the length of it, and a span the breadth of it. And in it you set settings of stones. This time it's four rows of stones. First one, a row of carnelian, topaz, and smaragd shall be the first row. And by the way, some of these stones, uh, at least I'm not familiar with them, I, I remember having read that maybe we're not sure about the identities of some of the stones at this point uh, as well. But in the second row, a carbuncle, a sapphire, and an emerald. Those, at least, we can probably uh, recognize. Third row, a, yas, a jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst. In the fourth row, a beryl, an onyx, and a jasper. They'll all be enclosed in gold settings. And the stones, again, shall be according to the names of the children of Israel. Twelve, like their names, like the engravings of a signet, every one of them according to his name, they will be for the twelve tribes. Now you make upon that breastplate plated chains of wreathen work of pure gold, and uh, upon the breastplate two rings of gold. Put the two rings of gold on the two ends of the breastplate. Now as I read these next few verses, I can't help but notice there are a whole lot of references to the word two in Hebrew. Uh, looks like... Um, uh, close to a dozen in total in just about the next five verses. <clears throat> then you put the two wreathen chains of gold on the two rings at the ends of the breastplate, and on the two ends of the two wreathen chains, put them on the two settings, put them on the shoulder pieces of the ephod in the forepart. And you shall make then two rings of gold, put them upon the two ends of the breastplate on the edge, which is toward the side of the ephod to the inside, and you shall make two rings of gold, put them on the two shoulder pieces of the ephod underneath in the front part, uh, close by the coupling, above the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And then they bind the breastplate by those rings onto the rings of the ephod with a thread of blue so that it can rest upon the skillfully woven band of the ephod, and that the breastplate may not be loose from the ephod. So it's kind of a, um, a multi-part piece. Uh, um, oh, it's... it's, uh, it's it, uh, the, the, the best analogy that I can think of is kind of, kind of almost like an armor, but this is, a, this is a beautiful set of armor with multiple pieces that are tied together but are free. Aaron, then it says, shall bear the names of the Benai Israel, in the breastplate of judgment upon his heart, when he goes into the set-apart place, the place that's called Kadosh, for a memorial before Yahuwah continually. And you shall put in the breastplate of judgment. Uh, this is another one of these interesting things that uh, seems to have been lost, but there's lots and lots of discussion about it, lots of references in Scripture to where it was consulted, called the Urim Vitumim. And uh, they shall be upon Aaron's heart when he goes in before Yahuwah. So essentially, um, and uh, this is uh, this is one of those things again where there is lots of lore. There are a number of references to it, but um, how it works is um, uh, subject of discussion. Uh, there is a claim that what it would do was these these stones would light up and it would project a light on the other stones and enable the um, the questions to be asked and and uh, Hebrew letters to be spelled out. Um, again, we, we don't have that in Scripture, but we do know from what Scripture does tell us that they were used a number of times in some very specific uh, places in the rest of history after this. These are upon Aaron's heart when he goes in before Yahuwah. And Aaron, it says, shall bear the judgment of the children of Israel upon his heart before Yahuwah continually. 
Now, make this robe of the ephod all of blue, and it will have a hole in it for his head in the middle of it. It shall have a binding of woven work round about the hole. Uh, in other words, kind of like a coat of mail so that it doesn't tear. Upon the skirts of it, you make pomegranates of blue and of purple and of scarlet round about the skirts and bells of gold between them all around. So here we're going to see a description. It's a bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate upon the skirts of the robe all around. And it shall be upon Aaron to minister. And the sound thereof shall be heard when he goes into the set-apart place, the Kadosh place before Yahuwah, and when he comes out, and this is always kind of interesting, so that he die not. Then you make a plate out of pure gold and engrave upon it, like the engravings of a signet, holy unto Yahuwah. And, and of course, in the Hebrew, this is Kadosh le Yahuwah. Notice, it does not say holy to the Lord. It says what it says. It says Kadosh le Yahuwah. And you shall put on it a thread of blue, and it will be upon the miter, on the forefront of the miter, so upon Aaron's forehead it will be. And it shall be upon Aaron's forehead, and Aaron shall bear the iniquity committed in the set-apart things which the Benaiah shall shalhadow, even in all their holy gifts. It shall always be upon his forehead that they may be accepted before Yahuwah. And you shall weave this tunic or coat in checker work of fine linen, make upon uh, the miter a fine, uh, make, make a miter of fine linen, and then make a girdle, the work of the weaver in colors. For Aaron's sons, likewise, you make tunics, make them for girdles and head tires or turbans uh, for them, and they will be for, again, these words, splendor and for beauty. You put them on Aaron your brother and upon his sons with him. They will and then anoint them and consecrate them and sanctify them that they may minister to me in the office of Cohen. Now, I, I'll pause here again. This is part of the reason why I wanted to do the news up front because it's the contrast here that I think should just literally leap off the page at us. We have got all of these... Uh, and, and I honestly admit that when I say these are scumbags, and these are traitorous lying SOBs, and these are true mob boss evil types, that I'm doing a disservice to the uh, um, the godfathers and the, Cor- uh, the, the Corleone families of the world by comparison. Because those guys seem downright honest compared to the scumbags that are literally trying to destroy the entire rule of law to, today. But they too have their garments. They got their... their $2,000 suits and their fancy robes, and um, consider, just consider this idea of consecration and of ministering unto Yah in the office of a Kohen, as opposed to a fake priest to another god, and uh, the difference could not be more stark. I guess this is interesting, too. Uh, the last part of the chapter 28 says, You'll make upon for them linen breeches to cover the flesh of their nakedness, from their loins to the thighs, they shall reach. So basically, kind of like a, a long shorts to um, to cover their nakedness. They'll be upon Aaron and upon his sons when they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister in a holy place that they do not bear iniquity, Torahlessness. Wouldn't it be cool if this applied to these scumbags? We'd have a whole lot of, um, well, let's just say, uh, no longer animated servants of Satan running around uh, New York City. This shall be a statute forever unto him and unto his seed after him. Now, for her, we're going to talk about the ordination of the, the, the priest. In other words, how, how things are going to happen. This is the thing you shall do to set them apart, to hallow them, to minister to me in the office of Cohen. 
Take one young bull, two rams, without blemish, unleavened bread, and cakes, unleavened, mingled with oil, wafers, unleavened, spread with oil, and fine wheat and flour you'll make these things from. You put one of them in one basket, uh, put all of them in one basket, bring them in the basket with the bull and the two rams. And Aaron and his son shall bring, you shall bring, unto the door of the tent of meeting, and wash them with water. Take those garments, put them upon Eric, the, uh, upon Aaron, the tunic, the robe, the ephod, the breastplate, the gird, and gird him then with the skillfully woven band of the ephod. Uh, the avnet is uh, the sash kind of thing, and uh, I, I've seen some notes saying that this was really long, like 60 feet long. Then you set that mitre upon his head, put the holy crown upon the mitre. Then take the anointing oil and pour it upon his head, and anoint him. So he is anointed. So the anointed term, remember, is Mashiach. Uh, and Mashiach is used because a number of peoples were anointed. Uh, kings and uh, high priests and others were anointed. And, of course, we also know that there was HaMashiach, and that's the definite article, but it also seems to apply specifically to the, the anointed Messiah that uh, would come at this point and, and has come. So just understand that that word applies to uh, the high priest, uh, like Aaron as well. Bring his sons, put tunics on them, gird them with the girdles, Aaron and his sons, bind their head tires, their turbans on them, uh, and then they can have the priesthood by a perpetual statute, and you'll consecrate Aaron and his sons. Then you bring the bullock before the tent of meeting, Aaron and his sons lay their hands upon the head of the bullock, and you kill the bullock before Yahuwah at the door of the tent of meeting. Take of the blood, put it on the horns of the altar with your finger, pour the blood all around it, the remaining blood, at the base of the altar. Then take the fat that covers the innards, the lobe above the liver and the two kidneys, the fat that's upon them, and make all of that smoke upon the altar. But the flesh of the bullock, its skin, its dung, you are to burn with fire outside the camp. It is a chatat, a sin offering. Then you take the one ram, and Aaron and his son shall lay their hands upon the head of the ram. Then you slay the ram. Likewise, take its blood and dash it round about against the altar, and cut the ram into its pieces. Wash its innards, its legs, put them with its pieces and with its head, and make all of it smoke upon the altar. It is a burnt offering, an olah, lifted up before Yahuwah, a sweet savor, an offering made by fire unto Yahuwah. Then take the other ram, Aaron and his son shall again, notice they always put their heads, their hands upon the head of the ram. You kill the ram, take of its blood, put it upon the tip of Aaron's right ear, the tip of the right ear of his sons, the thumb of all of their right hands, and upon their big toe, the great toe of their right foot, then dash the blood against the altar round about. Take of the blood that's on the altar and the anointing oil, sprinkle it upon Aaron, upon his garments and his sons, and upon the garments of his sons with him. He and his garments then will be hallowed, along with he and his sons' garments with him. Then take of the ram, the fat, the fat tail, the fat that covers the innards, the lobe of the liver, two kidneys, the fat that's on those, and the right thigh. This is a ram of consecration along with one loaf of bread and one cake of oiled bread and one wafer, out of the basket of unleavened bread before Yahuwah, and put the whole upon the hands of Aaron and upon the hands of his sons. And then they wave them for a wave offering before Yahuwah. And you shall take from them, from their hands, these things, make them smoke on the altar upon the altar of burnt offering, uh, for a sweet savor before Yahuwah. It is an offering, it says, made by fire unto Yahuwah. Then take the breast of Aaron's ram for consecration and wave it. It's a wave offering before Yahuwah. 
This will be, or it shall be, your portion. You shall sanctify the breast of the wave offering, the thigh of the heave offering, which is waved, which is heaved up, the ram of consecration, even that which is Aaron's, and that which is his son's. And this, it says, shall be for Aaron and his sons as a due. This is their portion forever from the Benai Israel. It is a heave offering. It will be a heave offering from the Benai Israel of their sacrifices of Shalomim, of peace offerings, even their heave offering unto Yahuwah. So one of the things we're seeing here is how it's set out that these offerings will essentially be the due or the um, the. I don't like the term wages in this context, but this is the thing which is given by the people uh, to Yahuwah, and then it is the, uh, the Kohanim that are the benefactors of it. They eat of these things. And the holy garments of Aaron shall be for his sons after him to be anointed in them and consecrated in them. So these garments will be passed down. Seven days shall the son that is uh, priest in his stead put them on, even he who comes into the tent of meeting to minister in the Kadosh, the set-apart place. And you shall take the ram of consecration, see that's flesh in a holy place, and Aaron and his son shall eat the flesh of the ram, the bread that's in the basket at the door of the tent of meeting. They'll eat those things wherewith atonement was made to consecrate and to sanctify them, but no stranger shall eat of them because they are set apart. They're for Aaron and his sons. And if any of the flesh of the consecration or the bread remains until morning, well, you burn all of that with fire. It shall not be eaten because it is set apart. Thus, it says, you shall do unto Aaron and his sons according to all I've commanded you. Seven days you consecrate them. Every day you offer the bull of the sin offering besides the other offerings of atonement. Do the purification upon the altar when you make atonement for it. You'll anoint it and set it apart, sanctify it. Seven days you do this. Make atonement for the altar, sanctify it. Thus, says the uh, the text, the altar shall be kadosh, kadoshim. There's that word again. Most holy, holy of holy, set apart. Whoever touches it or whatsoever touches the altar shall be holy. Now, this is that which you shall offer upon the altar. So here we're going to get a... Um, what's called the morning and the evening sacrifice. Two lambs of the first year, day by day, continually. One lamb you offer in the morning, the other lamb you offer at dusk. And with the one lamb, a tenth part of an ephah of fine flour, mingled with a fourth part of a hen of beaten oil, the fourth part of a hen of wine for a drink offering. The other lamb you offer at dusk, and do according to the meal offering of the morning. In other words, a similar process and a similar set of items. According to the drink offering thereof, for a sweet savor, an offering made by fire, unto Yahuwah. And it says, this shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the door of the tent of meeting before Yahuwah, where I'll meet with you to speak with you there. And there I'll meet with the Benai Israel, and the tent shall be sanctified by my glory. I'll also sanctify, or I will sanctify the tent of meeting on the altar. Aaron and his sons will I set apart, sanctify, to minister to me in the office of Cohen. And I will dwell among the Benai Israel, and I will be their Elohim. And furthermore, he says, they shall know that I am, here we go, Ki Ani Yahuwah, who brought them forth out of the land of Egypt, that I may dwell among them, Ani Yahuwah Elohekim. And finally, the last of the portion is um, having to do with an altar. Make an altar to burn incense upon it out of acacia wood. A cubit the length, a cubit the breadth, square. And two cubits, it'll be the height. 
The horns, they're made of it with one piece. Overlay it all with pure gold, the top, the sides, round about, the horns, and make unto it a crown of gold all around. Two golden rings you make for it under the crown, on the two ribs, on the two sides, and they shall be for places where the staves will go through that will be used to bear it. You shall make those staves out of acacia wood, and again, overlay them with gold. Put all of this before the veil that's by the ark of the testimony, before the ark cover over the testimony, where I will meet with you. And Aaron shall burn thereon incense of sweet spices. Every morning, when he dresses the lamps, he'll burn it. And when Aaron lights the lamps at dusk, he'll burn it, a perpetual incense before Yahuwah throughout your generations. Now it says, Don't offer any strange incense thereon, nor burnt offering, nor meal offering. Pour no drink offering thereon. And now we get the uh, the last verse in the Torah portion. And this, of course, is something we're going to see that's um, uh, important and is celebrated annually and still is a statute that he says to keep. Aaron shall make atonement upon the horns of it once in the year. With the blood of the sin offering of atonement, once in a year he shall make atonement. So we know recognize this as uh, Yom HaKippurim or Yom Kippur. This is done throughout your generations. It is most holy. Kadosh, Kadoshim, Le Yahuwah. Unto yod hei So come out of her, oh my people, for the time has come to judge Babylon. Boker Tov, folks. Shabbat Shalom. Good morning. Welcome back. And uh, we are going to talk today about a number of things, starting with the Torah portion, which is called Tetzaveh, and it begins in Exodus chapter 27, and it goes through um, oh, chapter 30, verse uh, 10 or so. And it begins with a uh, an interesting aside, which uh, sounds kind of off the topic of what the rest of it's going to be about. It has to do with olive oil beaten for the lamp. And I want to come back to that in just a second. But I want to I want to divert just for a minute and suggest, you know what? There is so much in this Torah portion that as I read it, I couldn't help but think, you know, what is the relevance today, given that we have so much going on in the world that pretty much says, uh, you know, high priest and uh, clothing for splendor and for beauty, things that are important to the uh, the service of the, the worship of Yah in his Mishkan, his tabernacle in the wilderness. How far have we come from that? How, how relevant is that? Now, it's always important, I will suggest, to study Torah and to, to glean the things that we can out of it. But I guess the answer to that question, and it struck me kind of like a, uh, kind of like a ton of bricks. Uh, the relevance, in other words, is in the contrast. In the contrast to what is happening today as opposed to what was going on here when we were talking about garments to clothe the uh, the Kohenim that gonna going to do the service in his temple or before that in his Mishkan. And how far have we come? Well, again, it's not just the contrast. It's the utter stark raving difference that is so apparent and so clear that I want to kind of focus on. And uh, as, I, uh, as I got to thinking about it, I realized... No irony in the fact that it begins with this little aside, almost an aside. Uh, it, it begin, Parsha Tetzave, of course, is uh, from the word, you shall command. So Tetzave, the Benai Israel, the children of Israel, tell them to do the following. 
first thing he says is, go bring unto you, to a Moshe, who is going to be the one that's going to do this here, pure olive oil beaten for the light, to cause a lamp to burn always, or to, to burn continually. And um, right there, that introduction, I think, is, is kind of fascinating. Pure olive oil, as opposed to what? The dregs of the sewer that are now running through the swamps of the capitals of the world? The temples to fake gods? Well, there's one contrast. That word uh, oil, of course, is, is shemen in, in Hebrew. And it's interesting that the, um, the word here that is used to go with it as uh, beaten for the light and pure olive oil beaten uh, is only used in conjunction... And it's um, katit. It's only used in conjunction with oil. This is the first use in Scripture. So there's something about this olive oil. Now, the uh, the sages, the uh, the history suggests that when you take these olives, uh, you don't crush them to do this oil. This is literally the oil that kind of comes unbidden just by, by putting them out. In other words, they're ripe. You put them in there, and uh, the mere pressure of the grape or the oil uh, olives, one upon the other, causes some oil to come out. This is the purest, the kind of olive oil that is used for the light in the temple. So there's a bit of a contrast. Uh, let's read the next couple of verses, and this is the place where I'm really going to just kind of point to and say, uh, right here, we have a jumping-off spot. Bring near unto yourself Aaron, his, your brother, Aaron's uh, Moshe's brother, of course, and his sons along with him, and they're named here Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. And then it says the following. So here's kind of what I'll suggest is the key to the first part of this. You shall make for them set-apart Garments, they're holy unto Yahuwah. As a matter of fact, the the breastplate, I'm sorry, the uh, the headplate, the uh, the golden um, label on the forehead of Aaron the Cohen, the Cohen Gadol, says uh, Kadosh le Yahuwah, holy, set apart unto Yahuwah. Well, these garments, it says, are for splendor and for beauty. So um, tiferat and um, for beauty, this this root word here is is kabod. Um, sometimes it's rendered as glory. But those are the words that I want to begin with, for, for splendor and for beauty. And uh, ponder the contrast in just a second, because the next verse tells us why it's important. And you shall speak unto all that are wise-hearted. Well, he'd have a hell of a time finding anybody to talk to in a swamp today, wouldn't he? You'll speak unto all that are wise-hearted, whom I have filled with the spirit of wisdom, that they're going to go out and make garments for Aaron to sanctify him, to set him apart, so that he may minister to me in the office of Cohen. And then we get a list of the things that they're going to make and a lot of the details about how it's going to be done. But right there, let's just pause and, and think about the uh, the contrast and what is being set apart. This oil that is pure oil is going to burn to provide light. What do we got today? We have darkness instead. Whereas once we had splendor and for beauty, I guess today we could say we have squalor and for ugly. We have clothes like the the scumbag garments worn by that fake priest of another god, the god of this world at best, satanic host, uh, Angeron, and uh, Letitia James, and uh, the scumbag um, whore down in Atlanta, Georgia. And I know I'm being too kind to her uh, and demeaning ladies of the night who earn an honest living, at least a lot closer to an honest living, by going out and boinking people for money. She's boinking everybody, and she's boinking the other guy too, and stealing the money, and then has the gall to charge Trump with violations of the RICO statutes for racketeering. This is so in-your-face evil. That's the thing about this that is, well, it's not for splendor and for beauty. Their garments are for squalor and for ugly. 
And I guess you could say they do a great job of, uh, of defining exactly how far we have come from the concepts that are laid out here in the Torah portion. Uh, this idea of light as opposed to darkness. Now, I want to mention just a couple of other things to kind of kick things off. Then I'm going to go in a, uh, well, a related direction. But I think it's important that we understand this contrast and how dramatic it is and what it says to us about where we are and what we need to be doing as we at least ponder what it might mean to get back to a place. Uh, you know, how far are we from a place where Yah would dwell among us? Answer, about as far as we can get and not, in fact, suffer the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah. And I can't help but think, and we're getting closer, New York City and anything around there is certainly getting closer by the day. So um, I, I hearken back, and this is a story that I, I hope will at least kind of set the stage. I was a very young engineer on my probably very first business trip uh, when I had come out of college and went to work for IBM. And I had a fellow that was a friend of mine. Uh, I later worked for him. At the time, he was a young engineer as well, but uh, he was older than I was and more uh, uh, more experienced. So he he and I went on my first business trip for IBM to New York City, and we ended up uh, going a couple places on that trip. But uh, I remember real vividly one particular experience. I don't remember where we were. We were in some kind of a fancy hotel. There was a conference being set up or something, and there were some uh, there were some ropes set up, no sign essentially. And um, we needed to go back there. We wanted to go back and, and find something or meet somebody or something. And uh, I remember to ask him. His name was Gary. And I said, Gary, uh, you know, there looks like there's a little rope set up. Can we, can we go back there? And we're both dressed, of course, in business attire, wearing our three-piece suits like we always did in those days on business for IBM. Gary looked at me and he said, Mark, you can go anywhere in a three-piece suit. And so we went back through the ropes. And sure enough, he was right. I probably wasn't but about 22 years old or so. Nobody said anything to us. It looked like we belonged, and uh, you know, just we just went where we wanted and, and did what we needed to do. But uh, that has stuck with me. This idea of um, you can go anywhere in a three-piece suit. Now, truth be told, I'm not what you call a fashion horse or anything of the kind. People that know me would recognize. Now, Mark doesn't care too much about what he wears. I, I'm more inclined to the practical. I want something that's not going to rip or that's not going to get um, uh, torn when it gets uh, dirty or when I uh, when I work hard in it or uh, crawl around on uh, on the floor or something like that. So a three-piece suit is not my natural attire, and I certainly have kind of tended to resist this idea of thinking that just because somebody's wearing a fancy suit that they have integrity or anything of the sort. Today we're seeing, of course, the opposite. You know, it's the it's the slicked-up lawyers in their uh, multiple-thousand-dollar suits and their wingtips that are, in fact, probably some of the sleaziest people on the planet. So, um, again, we have come a long ways from this idea of the clothes make the man or that these clothes for splendor or for beauty are supposed to show us the grandeur of the office and the importance of the one whom they serve. They did, and they should, when it comes to the set-apart places, uh, the places of um, where he puts his name and where he, in fact, um, comes to dwell among us in his spirit. But that's not the case anymore. So with that in mind, what I want to do is uh, just look at a couple of this idea um well, set pieces, if you will, for the darkness and light. First, a story from the burning platform, Jim Kunstler, with exactly that title. It's called The Dark and the Light. And um, he notes, uh, and, and there's some clever language in here, as Jim is likely to uh, to produce. He said, the florid carbuncle of woke Marxist lawfare has wept its vile effluvium across the social landscape, poisoning everything it touches. And nothing in the armory of reason or principle or good faith avails to heal it. Sickness rages through the body politic. And uh, he's right. That's what we're seeing. 
you've um, all of us we've lost faith in the so-called doctors they've lost faith in themselves fever intensifies the crisis is upon us which way will we turn towards death or recovery and uh, he's making a good point of course the the concept here is the darkness and the light and he says the poison killing our country is and i can't argue with this pervasive untruth now, as I was putting my notes together, I, I started to think about a number of ways in which we have, have literally gone from a place where this clothing that sets apart the Kohen uh, for splendor and for beauty has become squalor and ugliness and the contrast. But um, here's, here's his summary. Every institution we've relied on to run the public interest has become a factory turning out lies, evasions, misdirection. Not unlike the way mRNA so-called vaccines turned cells in people's bodies that were duped into taking it into tiny spike protein generators destroying organs. And as we saw another story, I've got it sitting here, immunosuppression prevalence has doubled since the rollout of the Zyklon B injections. Hey, there's a shocker. They put this stuff in your body to make it reprogrammed to produce crap that hurts you. And guess what? It destroys your immune system, too. Isn't that clever? Isn't that exactly what they intended? Likewise, half the population, though, still thinks this is a good thing. And the doctors have failed miserably, dishonorably. As a result, he says, America needs an exorcism. What explains all of this devotion to untruth? What motivates these people, he asks? Now, I will suggest it's, um, it's clear if we understand things from a scriptural perspective. They serve another God. They literally serve the prince of this world. They serve evil. They glorify death. Can it possibly be that mere perks and comforts are the ones that are the things that are driving? No, that's not it. They worship evil. It really is, folks. Hard to wrap our heads around if we don't, and it's hard to deny once we see it. Are they answering the call? Who's issuing the call? Well, we know. Are they trapped by their many years of just lying continually, fearful of getting cast into prison? Oh, well, that's part of it. They certainly know that if the truth comes out, they will be hanging from the end of a short rope. But that's not the real reason that motivates them. They glorify death. And they're willing to destroy everything, including themselves, rather than to admit that they have been serving the wrong God. Ask yourselves, what will satisfy these maniacs? Anything short of the total ruin of the country and the death of as many people as possible. What will their coveted power be worth in a ruined country? Well, look and see what's happening in New York. And that's one of the things that I think really motivates this discussion today. There is a level of evil there which is now unmasked. Actually, it's been going on for quite a while. And that's what um, some of the other uh, stories that I'll point to have been making uh, making clear. Uh, um, Martin Armstrong wrote a couple this week. Uh, one about how this New York attorney general, one of the truest slime bags in a true city of slime bags, Letitia James, he writes correctly that she is destroyer of worlds. That's the Indian goddess Shiva. And she has now said she intends to seize Trump's building if he can't pay the third plus of a billion dollars in penalty, plus who knows how many tens or hundreds of millions of dollars of interest. Ha 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 ha! that we will heap upon him, because we can do it, and you can't stop us. Because we're evil, and we know who we serve. And by the way, we got some cronies that have been finding, financing all of this. They want to buy those buildings at pennies on the dollar. That's part of the deal. That's how we stay in power. That's exactly what we do. And that, by the way, is exactly what uh, Martin Armstrong points out. The American way of life is dead. America now has more people in prison than communist China, even though... We only got 300 million or so people, and less by the day, whereas China has a billion and a half, but we still have more people in the gulags than they do. Are Americans just the most corrupt people in the world? 
Or is it that our government is far and away the world's most corrupt? You have a 500% chance of, a greater chance of going to prison in America with a K than you do in communist China. What does that tell you? By the way, prison isn't even a scriptural sentence, folks. The only people in the Bible ever used prison were the pagans. And that too makes sense. Um, and then he goes on to note this, and I think this is interesting to point out. Uh, remember, these are the people wearing the fancy three-piece suits today for uh, squalor and for ugly. Federal prosecutors have a 99.6% conviction rate. you got a better chance of rolling a string of sevens at a, at a blackjack or a roulette table or uh, what, a craps table, there you go, than you do of, um, than you do of winning in a so-called federal court against the corrupt judges and system. Uh, Pew Research wrote that nearly 80,000 people were uh, hammered last year by the federal um, so-called courts in criminal cases. Only 2% of those even went to trial. Most just realized you don't have a prayer, so they caved in. Matter of fact, if you don't cave in New York City, you're guaranteed you're going to get three times as much pr- prison time just for daring to, uh, to not cave like a good little slave. And furthermore, he notes here that um, when it comes to um, federal prosecutors, no, the defenders, public defenders in these places, it's just as bad. They've got um, a 99.6% rate of losses, almost like they're um, you know, throwing the ball game, whether it's the Super Bowl or your, your freedom. And if they can't put you on trial, you know what it'll do. They'll, uh, they'll kill you and swear it was suicide. And he gives example after example. You know Jeffrey Epstein didn't commit suicide. Um, even the New York Times, it was so bad, admitted the following. Um, Jonathan Turley talked about it. He's the, the Georgetown law professor, uh, left-leaning, but certainly a good head on his shoulders. He said the New York Times agreed they couldn't find a single case in history where the statute that was used against Trump uh, in New York was ever used against any other individual or company that did not commit a criminal offense and become convicted for, because that's how you know that they did it, at least that's how you used to know, because uh, the courts would claim that you did it, and then they would say, see, here's a fact-finding, a guilty verdict. Well, they didn't bother with that in the case of Trump. They knew that he was guilty before they even came up with the fake charges. Uh, Or, notes uh, the uh, New York Times, or leave actual financial victims, you know, people that had had a beef with what was going on here. In contrast, Turley noted, uh, loan officers who were witnesses testified that they wanted to do more business with Trump. They described him as a whale client with high-yield business opportunities. But here's the beauty of, uh, of a rigged system like this. They claim Trump's businesses in New York aren't worth nearly as much as he claims. Those buildings, well, we intend to sell them for pennies on the dollar. Ha ha! That's the bid. That's what we're going to claim as the value. So they're going to be essentially proven correct by their own self-fulfilling prophecies. How's that for clever? And furthermore, Armstrong notes that I haven't heard from one, not one single institutional client, and he has a lot of them, inside or outside the United States, who thought that this latest slam-dunk piece-of-crap verdict was reasonable. The overwhelming view is that it is what it is. It was a deliberate political hit job. And furthermore, he says, this judgment sick set a shockwave around the world. Because the rigged system allows them to seize Trump's assets in just 30 days. Not enough time for an appeal. Ha ha! Got you! And the answer, the moral, the message is being flashed to the entire world. Get the hell out of New York City ASAP. 
It, the, the verdict, the judgment was so outrageous, they intend to confiscate Trump's properties now, just destroy him because it's all about interfering with 2024 election. If you can't pr- possibly produce enough ballots to overwhelm the system, because now even the idiots will figure it out, well, then you just got to plain steal from him, destroy him, silence him, and ultimately kill him. And, and then he quotes um, the uh, the scumbag governor of New York, uh, Hochul, and she said, quote, she was, she was trying to tell people in, in New York City, oh, don't be afraid. If you're a good little slave, then we won't come after you. You know, wear your three-piece suit and pretend you're something special. And if you're a good little slave, you might escape our, um, our tentacles. Quote, I think that this is really an extraordinary, unusual circumstance that the law-abiding and rule-following New Yorkers, you good little slaves, you, who are business people, you have nothing to worry about because you're very different than Donald Trump and his behavior. Well, <laughs> wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Or you know now you had damn well better be or we'll steal your stuff too. Because what's stopping us? Hint, hint. Sure as hell isn't the rule of law now, is it? So this is kind of where we're at. This is the thing that I think is um, the way I want to introduce the, the rest of the place where I want to go today. And instead of for splendor and for beauty, again, we have for squander or for squalor and for ugly. And it's the contrast here between the light and the darkness that really should um, leap off the page at us. Um, it was interesting. I, I looked to see just uh, just to kind of... Uh, because I, I didn't think I wanted to go there, but uh, every now and then, at least, I'll talk about some of the uh, the standard readings that go with it. So, for example, the Haftor portion, which is, um, as you might expect, it's got to do with the temple and, and some of the uh, the furnishings elsewhere. But in this case, it's um, it's a reading from Hebrews that I think was kind of uh, kind of interesting. I won't read the whole thing because there's a little bit of um, there's a little bit of spin in it, but it says this. Verse 7, this is chapter 13 of Hebrews, verse 7. Remember those who rule over you. Oh, well, this is, is this a little bit like uh, Romans 13, where you, you know, like Kathy Hochul says, be a good little slave. Don't worry about the rule of law. And if you're a good little slave, and when we say uh, jump, you say how high? Just maybe we'll let you alone. Maybe we'll let you live. Hell, maybe we'll even give you a little bit of bugs to eat. Remember those who rule over you, it says. Uh oh. But wait, it adds this. Who have spoken the word of Elohim to you. <laughs> You're not going to hear that from Kathy Hochul, nor from uh, any of the Fanny Willis, or any of the scumbags, are you? No, you're not going to hear that. I'll tell you what you'll hear instead. Uh, we'll come back to the finish of, uh, of Hebrews uh, 13.7 in a second. But I saw this. This was on Politico, and also reviewed by the Gateway Pundit. Politico, of course, is a left-leaning rag. And they quote a reporter for, for Politico who appeared on, what else, MSNBC, um, the, uh, the communist mouthpiece. And she fretted. Her name is Heidi Prezabla. Prezabla. And she fretted because she says Christian nationalists, ooh, booga booga, they believe that Americans' rights, how dare they, are granted by God. And not, can you imagine this? And not by Congress or the Supreme Court. Now, pardon me, this blithering, boneheaded idiot who never so much as took uh, Civics 101, hasn't ever read the Declaration of Independence, and got a clue about American history, doesn't have the brains to come in out of the rain. Am I being kind? Yeah, too kind. Okay, this idiot says, 
Americans, these Christian nationalists, they don't believe what we know. You don't have rights from God, you pitiful little slaves, you. They're granted by Congress of the Supreme Court. And what Big Brother giveth, Big Brother can taketh away. So, um, says the article here, as... um, as re- repeated by uh, Mike Lachance, um, leaving aside her ridiculous distinctions between what she calls Christian nationalists and others who have ever read the book, the, the Bible, or the Declaration, the rights of Americans, we know this, do come from God and not the government. You have rights that come from the creator of the universe, said John Adams, not from any government of earthly men, of mere men. And anyone knows that if they've simply read the country's founding documents. We hold these truths to be self-evident. By the way, everybody ought to know this. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator. Who? Heidi? Endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. That means even idiots like you can't take them away. That among these are life, liberty, and property, or as they put it poetically, the pursuit of happiness. And that to secure these rights, that is the sole and singular purpose of government, Governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from what? The consent of the governed. Ask Mike Lachance, how is a person this stupid ever allowed to even comment on politics on TV with this level of dishonesty or, yep, outright ignorance and stupidity? This is a perfect example, he says, of why trust in the media, at least by those that have ever read any of these documents, is in the gutter. And he's right. But again, uh, let's go back and finish what um, what Paul was saying here, because it's what is not generally quoted that makes the distinction. Remember, he says, remember those who rule over you. Okay, hmm. who have spoken the word of Elohim to you, whose faith, their faith, follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. There it is. How's that for a contrast? You want to follow the faith of a Catherine Hochul? or of a Fanny Willis, or of the other scumbags, the Letitia James, destroyer of worlds, or uh, any of these these lying um, servants of Satan who put on their black robes to show you just how righteous they are and how you'd better fear them because their God is more powerful. No, he's not. And your rights don't come from them, don't come from their courts, don't, don't come from their fake gods considering the outcome of their conduct. Now, right now, the outcome of their conduct is that they're getting away with it. How much longer? I think that's the question everybody's asking. How long will the creator of the universe put up with this before ultimately we see, well, exactly what seems to be prophesied for the likes of Babylon, the great has fallen, is fallen. If you haven't seen it, there's a sign as you enter the harbor from the uh, from the sea into New York Harbor area. It says, Welcome to Babylon. And uh, can't think, can't help but think that's certainly interesting, isn't it? Uh, Yahushua Hamashiach is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's quoting other places in Scripture, which is another way of saying that if he is who he says he is, and he is, he changes not. He is the same yesterday and today and forever. That's why anybody tells you he did away with his own law when he said he wouldn't, is calling him a liar. Well, then guess who the real liar is? Do not be carried about, continues uh, the author of Hebrews, may or may not be Paul, as you know, with various and strange doctrines, because it's good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who've been occupied with them. Uh, I think he's referring to things like pork and shellfish and other things that uh, they tell you are good for you, just because the Bible says don't eat them. And then it goes on, here's the reason why this appears in the um, the Haftorah and the um, 
the Brit Hadashah readings associated with Tetzaveh, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. The bodies of animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for chatat, for sin, they're burned outside the camp. Likewise, with Yeshua, he suffered outside the gate. So let's therefore go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. Therefore, by him, he continues, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to Elohim, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. What name is that? The name that they take out all the time. yod heh vav Yahuwah, even the salvation of Yah. It's ironic, but let's not forget it, that if we can't even figure the uh, the clothing for splendor or for beauty, how much more so the things that they were supposed to serve, his very name which they are removing. But don't forget to do good and to share. For with such kinds of uh, zebak sacrifices, Elohim is in fact well pleased. Now, verse 17 is interesting, and listen to this one. It's kind of the capstone and the the um, the closing bracket to the one I started with in verse 7. Obey those who rule over you, except comma, and be submissive. Ready? Because he says, for they watch out for your nefshim, your souls. Do they? You really think Tony Fauci is watching out for you, soul? You think Fannie Willis is? You think Catherine Hochul is? You think these scumbags that want to teak, take everything you have, inject you with poisons, take the genitalia off your little kids, and then kill you? You think they're watching out for your souls? No, they're watching out for your stuff, but not for your souls. There's a problem here. Obey those who rule over you. That is, if they're ruling over you in accord with what? What is it the founders said? The consent of the governed. You don't have the consent of the governed today, folks. You can vote all you want. It's not going to make a damn bit of difference as far as they're concerned because you're the deplorables. You're the useless eaters. You're scum. You don't have God-given rights. You don't have any rights at all. And they're going to tell you. They're showing you. They're writing their verdicts. They're showing you exactly what they think of you and your God and the horse you rode in on. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls. Well, they don't, so now what? as those who must give account. Now, that ought to be both encouraging and scary as hell for them. As those who must give account. Now, remember, um, they're not actually rulers because they were never elected. There's nothing just. There's nothing lawful. There's nothing in accord with the word of Yah. What's that, Heidi woman saying, oh, they, they don't even believe that the, you have rights that come from God, which is the essential founding basis of all law in a once free country. See, the, the disconnect here is so great. The contrast is so great between for splendor and for beauty and for squalor and for ugly that we just have to recognize it. They do not watch out for your souls. They're watching out for to take your genitalia off your kid and make sacrifices of them to their fake gods. It could not be, it has not ever been made or revealed any more clearly than we've seen it just this week. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Well, we're way beyond that, aren't we? To the point where these people who are deserving of, well, the penalty for death, uh, the penalty for treason in the Constitution, if we had it, it is death. On the testimony of two or more witnesses, well, we got hundreds. No, we've got millions of witnesses in this case to the level of treason that's been going on. They're not doing so with joy. They're doing so come hell or high water because they recognize that there is no way out of this except for our death or theirs. They have made that clear. 
And the same thing goes for the upcoming elections and the upcoming rule of law and any attempt whatsoever, other than by the hand of the Creator Himself, to overturn what it is that they've gotten done. I can't help but think of that line from the um, the Wicked Witch of the West, right? Who does that a good little girl like you can overturn all my beautiful wickedness? Well, that's what we're dealing with. It's going to take the creator of the universe, though, and his work at this point to turn it over. I don't think any of us would, would want to see a civil war. That is what they're certainly jonesing for. That's what they're pushing for. That's what they're trying to get the first Fort Sumter shots fired for so that they can then go ahead and unleash the rest of their hounds from hell on uh, on the American populace. And as Joe Biden likes to rub people's noses in it, he doesn't have a brain, but he does at least know where the puppet strings are being pulled. You don't have a 15s! Well, guess what? We've got something a lot more powerful. we got the creator of the universe, yod heh himself. They don't even know his name, much less his authority. So uh, let, me, let me point to a couple of other um, items here that I want to make sure we... Uh, we note. Uh, I um, I put together just a couple of things. Um, the, the reference by Jim Kunstler was to the level of evil, the level of lies, the level of propaganda uh, that we're seeing here. And we know, I, I've quoted Matthew uh, 24 any number of times where Yeshua says, See that you are not deceived. See that you are not deceived. This deception is coming so great that it would fool even the elect if it was allowed to continue. So we know about the lies. We know about the AI. Okay, here's a quick story on the AI. Mask off this week. Uh, Gulag, and that's the right way to pronounce it, of course, has an AI tool and a model. It's a, an LLM, a large language model, and it also does image generation. It's called Gemini. And it was caught doing exactly what Orwell warned that the Ministry of Truth would do. So they've automated the Ministry of Truth from Orwell. And it literally was going back and it was rewriting history. And they would ask it, show me a 17th century physicist. And you might think, oh, that might be uh, Isaac Newton or somebody like that or uh, any, anybody from before. Uh, show me any kind of a physicist from uh, anywhere. And answer, well, they're going to produce a black image. Strong black men. And then when, when the people that were asking these questions began to think, well, no, it's not going to show me anything that's um, historically correct but not politically correct. So they actually tried to get, um, by asking specific questions, to which the answer was a specific individual who they knew would not fit the model that uh, this AI was trying to slam down their throats. It refused to image specific white males. And then it proceeded to lecture those with a PC lecture saying this would enforce racial stereotypes. So, the piece from uh, Tyler Durden and Zero Hedge summarizing it, and they had all kinds of pictures, they had no problem generating images of, quote, strong black men, but when asked, they said strong white men, quote, could potentially reinforce harmful stereotypes about race and body image, unquote. So, when, uh, when asked, uh, why won't you generate this? That was the answer that it was given. And then somebody said, well, you're racist. And Gemini proceeded to blame its own creators, <laughs> which at least makes sense because garbage in, garbage out. We've known this. They programmed it with bogus data sets, and they put it, uh, they they put into it bogus algorithms. They trained it with their own absurd, absolutely racist biases, and this is what you get. And the irony, of course, is if you remember uh, George Orwell in 1984, he talks not only about the Ministry of Truth, but he said uh, the, the famous quote essentially boils down to those who control the present that would be them, control the past. In other words, they can rewrite history. He who controls the present controls the past. He who controls the past then controls the future. So um, 
it's not like any of this is new. But what we're seeing, folks, is the um, the literal inversion, right? Calling evil good, good evil, replacing bitter for sweet. For splendor and for beauty has become for squander and squalor and for ugly. And uh, and then what? Well, a couple of other things. And again, all of these are elements that I think we have to um, that we have to be paying attention to and recognize. Uh, but it, it just shows us how far we have come on so many fronts. So. Um, Oh, let's see. Um, here's a here's a couple of comments from the book, the letter, if you will, that uh, Paul wrote to the people in Colossia. And this one too is uh, is another one of those that I uh, I enjoy reading because if we look at it and understand it in context, that Paul in fact was a consummate Torah scholar, and that the master he served did not change so much as one yoder tittle of Torah, then this makes sense. But if you read it the way that those that mistranslated it hope you will you get the opposite impression. Gee, does that sound just a bit familiar? In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of the Messiah, buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of Elohim, who raised him from the dead. Now, you, he says, if you're dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has been made Alive, and you together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Now, here is the line that people don't get. Having wiped out the handwriting of the requirements, in other words, the indictment, if you will, that's the legal term in, in modern 21st century parlance, an indictment under the law. So, an indictment under the law doesn't say murder, thou shalt not murder. An indictment under the law says, you done it, you're going to die for it. You're going to be indicted for having broken the law, committing the murder. So if you have had that handwriting of the ordinance, the the um, requirements, if it's been wiped clean, then what? Well, it's kind of like that call from the governor, the pardon. Did the, did the governor change the law? Did he wipe out the law? No. He wiped out the conviction and pardoned you for the conviction that had to do with violation of the law. But he did not wipe out the law that says thou shalt not murder. And guess what? You go out and commit another murder, this time they're going to pull the switch on that electric chair. And that's the point. And that's what tends to get missed here. So part of the reason I like to go through these things is it's the contrast that shows us how much lying has been going on. He has wiped out the handwriting of the indictments that were against us. The indictment singular, the indictment of death, basically, for having committed rebellion to him which was contrary to us. And he's taken it out of the way. Having nailed what? The law? No! Nailed the indictment to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Won't it be wonderful to see the day when the Fannie Willis's of the world and the Letitia James and the Angerons and the Biden Fuhrers and those pulling their puppet strings and the Obamas and all of those are literally made a public spectacle for the treason, for the rebellion, for the service to uh, the fake gods of this world, for their literal mass murders, lying, cheating, thieving, and utter, well, abominations in his face. So, he triumphs over them in it. Uh, Again, it hasn't happened yet, folks. 
And this is interesting. So he says, now this, by the way, is uh, completely upside down the way it's now read. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. So you say, I don't like to eat pig. And they say, oh, I judge you. You're not a good Christian. Here, have a little bit of pork chop. Let no one do that. Remember who he's writing to? He's writing to people in Colossae that were former pagans that are trying to come out of that. And they're being judged. Now, isn't it funny how that's being turned on its head? You're not keeping the feast of Ishtar, of Easter. You don't have your bunnies and eggs. You're not eating your Easter ham. Let no one judge you in that crap, folks. You're not keeping Christmas. Where's your Christmas tree? Let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a so-called Sabbath or a Christmas or an Easter, which are, um, well, the real ones as opposed to the fakes, right? The real ones are a shadow of things to come, or the fakes are a shadow of a whole different set of things to come that you're not supposed to be uh, jonesing for. The real ones are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of the Messiah. So let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is, in fact, from Elohim. It's funny here, as you look at this, and you read it, and you think about the historic context. Remember, Paul was writing, and, and we'll, we'll look at some of the other things. I've talked about many of them in, in recent weeks. Um, he, he refers to those who, who, having basically returned to the real true, one true Elohim, are now being drawn aside, back to the beggarly ways. And he says, hey, you know, if someone comes preaching another Jesus whom we've not preached, I'm afraid you'll just be suckered in. Don't let that happen. And that's precisely what was happening. But but think about it. Well, the irony here is, uh, these are people that are going back to various pagan ways and thinking, oh, those, those pagan gods weren't so bad, right? I, I like my bunnies and my eggs and my Christmas trees. I liked a little bit of bacchanalia. Arguably, folks, the kinds of things that were going on in pagan Greece and in pagan Rome and in pagan um, Colossia are... Are they, uh, no, let's just be let's just be blunt. They're they're trivial. They they pale in comparison to the kind of demonic child sacrifice that's going on in the Biden Fuhrer's family. That's being documented on machines, on laptops that you're not supposed to see. It's being covered up by the FBI. It's being imported across the southern border. One of the most profitable industries in the world: human sex trafficking and human sacrifices. Don't kid yourself. It's every bit as real now as it ever was in human history. What is going on today? What, what did we see with the sacrifice of tens of millions to the COVID god and to the Fauci god, the high priest thereof? The things that are happening today, uh, they're, they're the same kinds of things that were happening throughout history. They're just a hell of a lot more technologically advanced. They're doing them in greater numbers, and they're doing them more brazenly. And that's what we've seen. That's why this, this last week and these, these revelations in Atlanta and in New York and the hypocrisy, which goes so far beyond hypocrisy that we run out of words, out of superlatives to describe this level of evil. But it is precisely what we're talking about. It is the darkness and the light. The darkness hates the light. The pure olive oil beaten for a light, which is to burn continually in a temple, in a, a mishkan, a set-apart place for him. Wow, how far have we come from that? Garments that they wear, literally celebrating a satanic 
perversion in the place of the one true Elohim. People that don't even know that we once held these truths to be self-evident, that there is a God and our rights come from Him. How dare you say that? And they'll quote Paul for you and try to convince you, oh yes, we care about your souls. Why? We want you to virtue signal. We want you to pretend that wokeness is your God. What a crock of you-know-what. Listen to what Paul says further. Um, after saying, let no one cheat you of your reward, he says, therefore, if you died with the Mashiach from the basic principles of the world, the kinds of things that are being taught in the cesspool schools today, why, uh, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to its regulations? You can't buy a gun, you slave, you, without signing your 4337 form. You can't eat unless we tell you to. What does Paul say? Don't touch, don't taste, don't handle. Folks, it's just that the things that are going on today are even more satanically insidious. You good little slave, you, you had better recognize that as long as you play by the rules, our rules, and they'll change whenever we damn well feel like it, we might let you have a little bit of money, we might let you have a little bit, hell, we might even give you some bugs. We might let you keep your children after we cut off their breasts and genitalia. Isn't that nice of us, you little peon slaves, you? Make sure you get permission, though. Make sure you get permission to leave. Make sure you wear your mask, you little slave. Make sure you get your mark showing that you've been a good little slave and you've taken your Zyklon B injections. Folks, there's nothing different about what Paul was warning then and today except degree and the level of control. Rome, at least, had to send centurions to go look and see what people were doing or, or get their neighbors to rat them out. Hell, Big Brother's got your cell phone today and your toaster oven and your TV. They're listening. You'll rat yourself out to them. Khrushchev was right. Not only will you sell the rope to, uh, to us to hang you with, you'll give us all the information we want. And it'll come right from your own um, vile internal snooping industries. So he says, if you died with the Mashiach from the basic principles of this world, why, as if you were still living in the world, are you subjecting yourself to all of these regulations? Regulations that, by the way, if we had a constitution, they have no constitutionality whatsoever. Right? To require permission from Big Brother in order to defend yourself with the one tool which is explicitly named and said shall not be infringed in the Constitution? Well, as I like to say, if you can do it with that, what can't they regulate? You better have your permission to buy food. You better have your permission to buy energy. If you're a good little slave, we'll let you turn the thermostat above 62. Aren't we nice? We might even give you an extra pair of socks. Well, maybe not. All of these things, writes Paul, they concern things which perish with the using and are in accord with the commandments and doctrines of men, not of Yah. Says Yeshua, recall, Luke 6, 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things I say? By your traditions, he said in Mark chapter 7, you have made the commandments of Yah of no effect. All Paul is doing is repeating exactly what his master has warned us about and exactly what, in fact, he was seeing happening then and we're still seeing happening only more so today. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility and neglect of the body, but they're of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. If you then were raised with Hamashiach, seek these things which are above, where the Messiah is sitting at the right hand of Elohim. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. 
For you died, he says, and your life is hidden with the Mashiach in Elohim. For he who is our life appears, then you also will, will appear with him in glory. Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth. All kinds of various things that he says are, are negative. Uh, the Greek word here, as you know, is porneia, means sexual sin. Uh, no, it's not premarital sex, because there ain't no such thing if we actually understand scripture and so forth. So you've got to be careful about some of the way that the uh, Hebrew is translated through the Greek, translated to Old English, translated into Modern English. But by and large, there are a whole lot of things which, guess what, were called uncleanness, they were called uh, tamay, and uh, they were called abomination. Now what? They're celebrated, they're taught. A man lying with a man is with a woman. Bestiality. Don't think that they're not teaching it. They are. It's going to be the very next big thing, LGBTQ, and then another B. If it's an abomination to Yah, they'll teach it in the cesspools, they'll subsidize it, they'll mandate it, and they'll take your way, your kids away from you if you don't want them to be exposed to it. Evil desires, covetousness, idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of Elohim is coming upon the sons of disobedience. Bo Mashiach. May it come soon upon New York City, upon the swamp in the slime pits of Washington, Sodom on the Potomac. May it come to all of those who are wallowing in and literally teaching and mandating this level of evil upon those who sadly are submitting because they don't know any better. They do not know him. I remember uh, Al Gore's favorite verse. Remember this, John 16.3, my favorite verse. If you haven't read it, remember it was John 3.16 that you used to see at the ballpark when people would hold up the signs. For Elohim so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But um, Al Gore, like so many other things, likes to invert it. So he says this. Ah, my favorite verse, John 16.3. It says this. Uh, this is, by the way, the words in red, and uh, I'll, I'll read up to it, but then here we go. These things, says the Mashiach, I have spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. Okay, here it is, John 16, 3. And these things they will do to you, because they have not known the Father, nor me. How's that for truth and advertising? All of these things they're pushing. They are according to the commandments and doctrines of men. They have appearance of wisdom. They have the appearance of righteousness, folks. They are nothing but woke virtue signaling. They are the exact opposite, calling evil good and good evil. They have replaced darkness for light. And what was clothing that marked those who served Elohim for splendor and for beauty has now been turned into squalor and for ugly. And uh, they're, uh, they're marked. Uh, we need to be able to see it wherever they go. I want to read um, one more. This will be... Uh, and I'll ask, uh, let's see, before we, uh, before we get there. Uh, do we have any questions today? Uh, comments on anything we've talked about so far? Anything or, uh, or of last night either? Okay. This is one that I find myself turning to more and more often. Yes, you've heard me talk about it of late. But it seems like every time we go back and look at this, and in the context of all the things that are going on today, the lies, the AI, the 1984 writ large, the lawfare. And what is lawfare? That is literally what's been done by the whore church for centuries. It's saying that you got to be part of the one true, holy, universal, and Catholic church, or you're going to burn in hell. You can buy some indulgences from us. But you know what was it that they were doing? It was lawfare. It was lawfare for a thousand years. You pee on you. How dare you think you can have a copy of the Holy Scriptures? And it was, in fact, 
a capital crime for a lay person to have a copy. You can't possibly read that anyway without a priest to interpret it for you. You might start thinking it means what it says. We are the ones who will rewrite his words when we feel like it. Hell, that's right out of New York City's playbook. Wonder where they got it. Yeah, the one true, holy, universal whore church. And by the way, let's not forget, there were whore synagogues too. And uh, we've seen a battle between the whore church and the whore synagogue, both of whom are walking in rebellion, both of whom are still in exile for what? Rebellion to the one true Elohim. Ain't nothing new under the sun. But this is how it boils down uh, Again, uh, as we understand where we are and what we need to be looking at this week. Um, the second letter Paul wrote to the people in Corinth. So this Second Corinthians chapter 7. Oh, Corinthians, he says, we've spoken open to you, openly to you, our hearts wide open. You're not restricted by us, he says. You're restricted by your own affections. What are their affections? They want to return to, well, just like the people did having been brought out of bondage, back right into bondage. This, folks, is somehow, I have difficulty wrapping my head around it, but it's the human condition. Jefferson wrote about it. There's a lot of people that would rather return to bondage than to sail upon the somewhat turbulent seas of liberty. The kind of liberty by, you know, he who has made us free are free indeed. That kind of thing. Now I'm going to speak to you as children, he says. So here we go. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Now, is this applying to the church, the Sun God Day Church? I, uh, I sometimes take criticism. I know that's shocking to a lot of folks. Because I will point out to the whore church that the whore church is still in rebellion, still whoring. If you're keeping Sun God Day and Ishtar and saying we can eat pork because we are free in Christ Jesus to do whatever we damn well want to and the hell with what he says, oops, now they don't quite put it that way, but if you think about it, that's precisely what it boils down to. Who do we trust? He said, I'm not changing what I wrote for you. What's good for you? What's food? It hasn't changed. The day that I said is my day, set it apart. Now, you can worship any day of the week, and you should. But my day, set apart day, the day to do no work, guess what? That hasn't changed. Same one I've always given to you. Same what I said keep forever throughout your generations in all your dwelling places. Any questions? We've talked about how he puts it in great big red flashing lights. He sets it off with an hot bosh. He makes it so clear. And what does the whore church do? Ignore it. Simply pretend that he changed it. No, he didn't. The Pope changed it. Uh, well, he and Constantine wanted it to be on Sun God Day, and that's, uh, that's a pretty good deal. You'll quit killing us, and, and we'll say, how hey, the hell with that particular commandment of God, too? Oh, yeah, you want us to worship a Yule Logs and, and on Christmas and Mithra's birthday? That's okay. We've already gone a little ways, right? A little whoring? Why not go the rest of the way? In for a penny, in for a pound. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Now, they're going to tell you we're believers. We serve the same Jesus. Do we? Another Jesus whom we've not preached? This is the part that I have a really big problem with. Oh, can't we all just get along? Can't we? Well, can't we all just worship the same God? Do we or not? What fellowship, he says, has light with darkness? What fellowship has righteousness with Torahlessness, with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? He's asking the tough questions. The trouble is, most of the whore church doesn't want to hear the tough answers. What accord has the Mashiach, the real one? You notice I'm not using the word that uh, there are many of them. Here Christ, there are Christ, everywhere are Christ, Christ. We're little Christ, little Christos. Do we or do we not serve the one true Elohim? Do we recognize what he said he wasn't going to do? And what they said he did by doing away with the law? 
What fellowship do we have with a Christ that cannot be the Messiah, the one true Son of the living God? Either we're willing to come right out and say it, you know, or we're not. Can't we all just get along? Well, it depends. Are we willing to drop some baggage? I'm willing to drop a little bit of baggage, but on the other hand, if you're willing to drop the baggage of the Messiah himself, i got a problem with that. Color me not exactly willing to have fellowship with ahem, unbelievers. What part, he says, has a believer with an unbeliever? Well, I believe he's the risen Messiah. I just don't believe he did what he said. I just don't believe his blood is really worth anything. I don't believe the life is in the blood. I don't believe it matters what I eat. Don't believe it matters. Why do you call me Lord? Lord, and not do the things I say! How difficult is it, folks, to read what he wrote? If you love me, keep my commandments. There comes a time, and I think we're there, where if we're not willing to say, damn it! He either is who he says, or he's a liar, and the truth is not in him. And are we worshiping the right one, or are we worshiping a fake? Go to New York City, worship Letitia James, steal people's stuff, take your damned injections, let your kids be sacrificed on the altar of of all the satanic hosts. But for crying out loud, then don't come running to me and say, you know what, they killed us. You were warned. As Yeshua said, You have your reward. Let me read this again. Again, uh, you, you admit, you'll understand. I read this, and after watching what has been done to a once great country, after I watch a country go from the greatest, most powerful, most God fearing country on earth, certainly in modern history, to a cesspool destined for the very pits of hell and deserving the wrath. The fire of Almighty Elohim, I tend to get a little peeved. So I read this and I think, either we understand what he's saying here or we don't. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with torallessness, with lawlessness? The love of many will will run cold because lawlessness will abound. Does that sound familiar? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has the Mashiach with Belial? Various forms of Baal is the root word here. Fake gods, lords. Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? This is a warning, folks. It is clear, it is unequivocal, and now it ought to leap off the page at us as undeniable. And what agreement has the temple of Elohim with idols, your damned bunnies and eggs and Christmas trees? For you, he says, are the temple of the living Elohim. Are you? Or is it full of crap and pagan stuff? The abomination in the mouse, says Isaiah 66. As Elohim has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I shall be their God and they shall be my people. Leviticus. Oops, that's one of those things you're not supposed to read. That's Old Testament, isn't it? Leviticus chapter 26. Therefore, he says, and I think this is good advice, as you know, because we talk about it almost every week. Come out from among them and be separate, says Yahuwah. Do not touch the unclean thing and I will receive you. Isaiah chapter 52. Turns out that a lot of these are repeated in more than one place in Scripture. Look at the footnotes at the bottom. He is summarizing what has been told to us many, many times. And as you know, 
um, come out from among them is a whole lot like what Revelation says. Is it a um, is it a second witness? Yep, I can't help but think that's what it is. Come out of her, my people. Do not participate in her sins, so that hopefully you do not partake of her plagues. Plagues? We're getting there. For I will be a father to you, says Elohim, and you shall be my sons and my daughters, says Yahuwah Zevuot. So, having these promises, he continues in chapter 7, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and the ruach, perfecting set-apartness in the fear of Elohim. Set-apartness. What is it that these garments are supposed to do? They're to reflect holiness. What is holiness? This is the reason why I'm not real wild about the English word holy. What does holy mean? I don't know. It's something you might see in a in a Catholic church. You know what them 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 popes there that are holy? No, they're not. Holy means set apart to Elohim, to the one true Elohim. It's that simple. Set apart to Him. Don't make it anything. It's it's not some holier than thou and all this crap we've been led. It's not wokeness that makes you holy. Well, it may make you set apart from those that know what real set apartness is, and rightfully so. Have no fellowship with that crap. But recognize that we are at a time, folks, where you cannot help but see what is going on here. The darkness and the light, the level of evil, the out of control, the in your face, they're not hiding it. It's all, you know, I mean, the only thing that they could do that they haven't come out and done yet, well, no, come to think of it, they're coming out and doing that. They got their satanic clubs at high schools. They're literally, and these aren't even necessarily biblical symbols, but they're putting on their, their red outfits and horns and pitchforks for all practical purposes. You look at these people, you see what they're doing, you recognize their fruit, and you go, ain't nothing holy about this. But it should be. It should be set apart because they are servants of the prince of this world, Hasatan, the bad guy, Old Scratch. And what fellowship do we have with them? None whatsoever. And do not fear them. Do not fear those who can kill the body. We've been told all of this. There, there are a lot of things in these writings of Paul that people kind of, they, they want to take them out of context and they want to mortify the flesh and the flesh is evil and all that. The flesh is not evil necessarily, folks, in and of itself. It was created by Elohim. We dwell in a fleshly body that's here. Can it be corrupted? You betcha. Can it be sanctified? You betcha. There are elements of it that are for blessing and for goodness. He has given us all kinds of things that are for our blessing. But on the other hand, if we start making those things gods and worship them and ignore the stuff of him, that's the place, and this is what Paul's writings properly understood in the context of his word are pointing out, they become objects of evil because they have been used for evil. That's the, I mean, take an example. Here's an easy example. Even some of the left could almost wrap their heads around a firearm. It's a tool. It is a, an inanimate piece of metal and or plastic, the purpose of which is properly used to defend life and property and to dispatch evil beasts and evil people that try to take those things. Used for evil, it can be used to kill. So, by the way, can an axe, so can your bare hands. The point is, it's all about the fruit. It's all about the understanding. Scripture makes this so clear. Show me your faith by your works. You tell me you believe, show me. Show me how you walk. Show me how you behave. Show me how you use the tools, the bodies, the skills 
the understanding, the blessing, the intelligence, the intellect, the knowledge that the Creator has given you. And when you use it like a Letitia James or a Fanny Willis or an Angeron or a Biden Fuhrer, even though he's now had the, uh, well, uh, the comeuppance that he's arguably deserved, well, part of it anyway, there's a separation that should be and is, must be imposed. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. What fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? The answer is none. We know that. But we had better realize it, because when the lawless is destroyed, it's a good thing that that separation be there. Uh, and I'm going to suggest that um, the time is coming closer. I don't know when it is. I wish it was already here. Truly. But we're not here yet. Uh, and I, I will admit, too, I see some stirrings this week, and I see some other things going on, and I can't help but think there's another lesson we need to at least point out. It's the lesson of the French Revolution, if you remember. And I remember even Thomas Jefferson, early on, was deceived, thinking, oh, the French are going to do exactly what happened in America. The French are going to throw off the egalitarianism. Well, well, no, it turns out egalitarianism is one of the snares. They're going to throw off the uh, the elitism, and replace it. But they didn't. What they replaced it with was a void. Because unlike the American Revolution, where they said, we hold these truths to be self-evident, there is a God. Franklin urged that the Constitutional Convention open with a prayer. Because if a, if a great nation can't rise without him, well, then what does that say, right? Sparrow doesn't fall without him knowing. Can a great nation rise without it? Well, let's make sure we do. The contrast, again, the contrast between for splendor and for beauty and for squalor and for ugly is the same contrast we saw between the American Revolution and the French. The vacuum, the void, there was no God. Egalité, fraternité, liberté, nothing there about the creator of the universe. And the result spoke for itself, literally, blood in the streets. It was carnage on a massive scale. Robespierre and a whole bunch of people that participated, they all lost their heads, literally. Without the Creator, that is precisely what a second American Revolution will look like. It is precisely what Big Brother and those who are pushing this nation towards the demise, the destruction, the death, the mayhem, the chaos, the squalor and the ugly that they have been pushing for are working so hard to achieve. If they can eliminate the Creator from the equation, they will succeed. I don't know how it's going to pan out. I can't make the majority. Matter of fact, in, in history, I'm not aware of any place in Scripture where the majority was ever on the right side, on the side of the Creator. There probably were times, but if there was a vote taken, folks, you know the various examples. They didn't choose him. Give us a king like all the other nations. They got Saul. They didn't choose him. If that choice is made again, we already know how it's going to come out. I suspect we know the answer. I'm not going to claim that it can't be different. It was different for a while for Nineveh, as you know. By the way, we got that big eclipse coming up here in uh, in April. And ironically, I saw this uh, interesting article. There are seven little places, cities in the United States that the zone of totality that's going to cross over and complete this big X that people have been talking about. There are seven places in that path of totality that are named Nineveh in the United States. How's that for almost a um, 
divine level of coincidence. Yeah, sure. All right. There's even one that's evidently called Jonah. I think it's in Texas. So um, is, is there a message being sent here? Well, I'll put it this way. If, there's, if it's not, there should be. But I can't help but think when it's that obvious, when the coincidence is that bizarre, there is. Uh, what does that mean? Well, it means we've probably got until April the 8th. But in the meanwhile, I think we better get our houses in order and, and be aware. Because after that, I'm not sure what happens. But I do know this. Unless we return to the Creator, a French Revolution is a far, far, far safer bet than a second American Revolution in the style of 1776. So what does that mean? Well, again, Joshua had it right. Choose this day whom you will serve. And he gave the answer. As for me and my house, we will serve Yahuwah. You notice, he cannot presume to answer for some other man's house. Neither can I. As for me and my house, we will serve yod heh vav and him alone. And that's all that can happen. And so I'm urging heads of household and all of those people who know who we serve, who understand what the real rule of law is and what it's based on, and what the real Mashiach came and did, as opposed to a fake, a pagan imitation, another Jesus we've not preached, one who did away with the law and says, Come on, get your gay pride flag right here. Put it on your Major League Baseball. San Francisco Giants going to put gay pride symbols on their baseball uniforms. I uh, don't think I want to be at ground zero on the west, the left coast either, come, uh, come what's coming. So we can choose. We have a choice. That is the one immutable two-word summary that's constant in Scripture. Choose life. We have that choice. That choice cannot be taken away from us, but we will be held responsible for it. So understand that and know it. And choose life. And folks, if enough people will choose life, the nation, the land, can be saved. Is it going to happen? I don't know. But I do know this. Those whom he makes free are free indeed. Those whom he saves by his shed blood, we are saved indeed. We have that choice. We can and we should and we must walk in obedience to him. And it doesn't matter what our neighbor does. Doesn't matter what the FBI director tells us. Doesn't matter whether some scumbag on MSNBC who's ignorant of American history says that how dare these Christian nationalists think that we have ro- They, not, not me, I'm a good little slave, have rights from God. If you don't have rights from, from Elohim, folks, you don't got nothing. And trust me, Catherine Hochul and uh, Angeron and the scumbags in the, uh, in the slime pit of New York are destined and anxious and thrilled to prove that to you. They'll take everything you've got, including your kids, your home, your property, and your very life. And then they'll wipe the blood off their lips and they'll go get themselves more victims. So, uh, so recognize it and, uh, and, and walk in obedience. Um, I guess I'm anxious to close on an, an up note. Uh, it's easy enough to do. Essentially, you can simply open the book at, um, at most places and pull out the, um, the comforting words there. Even the ones that I've already read, for, for example, today. Um, he has wiped out the handwriting of the injunction, of the, um, the requirements, is, is one of the translations here, right? Against us. Having, however, been forgiven, right? What does he tell us? Don't put him to death. Don't put him to shame again. All of these are important reminders. They're they're emphasis of what we already know. He did not change his word. 
his law. Now remember, his law, his Torah, is a lot bigger than just statutes and judgments and commandments. It's the very fabric of what are the, the physicists call the laws of the universe, the law of gravity, the second law of thermodynamics. He didn't change those either. He didn't change the laws of biology. Two men still can't make a baby, and pig is still not food for human beings. What he did do was he wiped out the sentence of death for the crime that we are guilty of, which is rebellion to him. Taken it out of the way. That is, in fact, what has been nailed to the cross. But what does he say? What's your rightful service when you recognize that that's the case? Walk in obedience. Matter of fact, be a bondservant to the Most High. And with that, I will say, may that be true of all of us. May we walk in obedience. If you love me, keep my commandments and be bondservants to the one true Elohim, the Torah made flesh. Amen. So, uh, let's see, I'll ask again. Um, any other questions, anything that I missed? I see lots of churn in Pal Talk. I guess no surprise there. Uh, okay, I don't see any, so uh, let's close with the Aharonic blessing. We remember that Yahuwah spoke to Moshe, saying, Speak and turn to Aharonic sons and say to them, This is how you bless the Benai Yisrael. Say to them, Yivarekaka Yahuwah Varishmareka Yair Yahuwah Panavaleka Vichuneka Isaiahuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhu